What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and excited to be back talking all about student debt. And we've got, again, our special guest on. I won't tell you who it is. Surprise, surprise. You've heard her twice already, and she's going to be amazing. But we're going to talk all about things that we've seen physicians do with their student debt that they probably shouldn't have done, and maybe some lessons you can learn or things not to do. Again, this is not specific financial planning or investment or student debt advice. This is helpful tips and tricks and education to hopefully increase your financial acumen. All right. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is locumstory.com. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine, whether you're burned out or you need a change of pace or looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. And if you're not sure where to start, Highly recommend you check out locumstory.com. They're a place where you can get real unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like what is locum tenens to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locum tenens can actually work for you. So go to locumstory.com or you can check them out drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory and you can get all those answers and probably a whole lot more. And of course, the link is in the description of the podcast player you're listening to us in right now. All right, let's jump in and hear all about some mistakes that we have seen potentially some of you, hopefully not all of you, make with your student debt. Joy, welcome back on the show. Hey, Ryan, it's great to be here. Let me get my tissue. These are the saddest stories. So. I know some of them are sad. Some of them, there's some outcomes that we've seen that's, ooh, that could have been really bad. Just in case, just in the nick of time. Yeah. But we caught it or they caught it. I've had some people email in and say, hey, I was listening to this thing that you had said. I was about to do this. And that's happened across with insurance and all sorts of things. But sometimes student debt comes in. It's, oh, I didn't realize I couldn't go back. Or, hey, I realized that this might not have been their best repayment strategy for me. Or I was about to sign off all of these loans and have another person fully manage that. And that's probably not a good deal because who knows if they will or not. So what are yeah. some of the things you've heard, you've seen, people have done that some of the viewers can learn from? Yeah, well, Ryan, to get ready for our call today, I pulled up the list of the 997 most recent reasons that people have wanted to consult with us. When people schedule an appointment with us, we ask you, what's your reason for the call? So we have these 997 questions and some of them like totally are people on the verge of a big mistake. Here's the first one. Just for clarity, we're not going to go through all 997, are we? Oh, come on, Ryan. They're all good. They're all good. (laughs) Hey, all of you listening, do you have about six days to listen to this show? Here we go. (laughs) Oh, gosh. No, I think one of the funny things we learned was that often people will describe themselves, you know, I'm a resident, I'm a medical student, I'm a new attending pediatrician, whatever. Or they'll start by saying, my husband or my wife usually does the money in our household. So people are looking at this holistically, which I really like. And they're putting themselves like in the frame of the story. And then pretty quickly, it comes down to the problem. Here's one for you. So we have a client who came to us because he had started off on the revised page you were in repayment plan. When he was in residency, he's one of those people that wasn't sure if he was going to be going into private practice or going to be an employed physician. And he liked that interest subsidy. And turns out he ended up being an employed physician and he was working for a major health system. And over time, his income increased and it increased so much and he wasn't paying attention that all of a sudden when it came to recertify his payment amount, okay, Ryan, I can see you nodding here. You know what's happening, don't you? Yeah, sadly. <laughs> payment amount was larger than the cap would have been. 
So here's a lesson for everyone who's listening. For a lot of physicians, depending on the size of their loan and the size of their income, there may be a time when you'd like to use the cap. And the cap is great because you save money, but you also save time. So when your income gets to a certain point, if you're on pay as you earn or IBR, you no longer have to recertify. Your payment ends up just being that standard 10-year plan. And so you don't have to do the annual recertifications. Even if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness, all those payments on that standard plan still count because that's one of the qualifying repayment plans. And so your life is just much more simple and you're saving money because your payment won't increase any further. And sometimes if you're a married borrower and you've been filing separately, now you can file jointly. So there's tons of ways that cap can help you save money. But the lesson is you have to have a partial financial hardship in order to qualify for the pay as you earn or the IBR, which means you need to get on that plan before your adjusted gross income is high enough so that you no longer have a partial financial hardship. That is a very key feature of that. Don't wait too long and then go, "Uh uh-oh, I can't go into those because I don't have a hardship when I make $400,000. So you got to be thinking ahead. You got to have a plan for your loans and don't get stuck in repay because there is no cap. That would be very, very, very expensive. And honestly, not that much fun to overpay on your loans when you didn't need to in the first place. And speaking of married filing joint or filing separate, a lot of the people out there that are on YouTube or podcasts or blogs They give out some general knowledge, but don't ever disclaimer, hey, this might not actually be applicable to you. And so what I've seen a lot is physicians that'll call in or they'll be working with us and immediately think, oh, because we both make a lot of money, we have to file separate. And that is not always the case. And when you file separate, you lose a lot of tax benefits. The tax code is heavily skewed to benefiting married filing joint versus married filing separate. So you have to make sure that you're working with not only if you're going to make these decisions on your own about your student debt or working with someone like Joy's firm to help you with your student debt, that's one piece. But the CPA is also the other piece to say, okay, maybe I can lower my payments. Great. And maybe that kicks out my forgiveness. I'm just making up numbers at this point that I'll forgive. I'll get 50K more forgiven. But if you go do your taxes for the next six years while you're filing separate, if that was the case and that was what you guys rolled out and you're going to pay 100K more in taxes, I'm going to tell you that's probably not the best option. <laughs> you're right? going backwards, man. But when we talk on podcasts, like we don't know any of you listening. We're not your fiduciary. We've never established a relationship. And if we have and you're one of, say, our one-on-one clients, we've already had these discussions. This isn't geared for you. But we're giving you guys these tips and tricks and hints and things. That's why I always say it's educational. Do not listen to what we're saying learn from what we're saying, and then either work with someone or apply it on your own. But just taking things for the gospel, if you will, of I have to file separate because my spouse makes 200,000 as well, doesn't always work out in your favor. And so we've seen countless people that have reached out and said, well, I've been filing separate for four years now. I'm going, why? Why are you doing that? You're losing out on the tax side so much more. They're like, really? Yes, you're overpaying on that piece. But If you didn't hire a CPA and you're doing your own accounting, like maybe you didn't know, right? And hopefully the softwares tell you that, but you don't know. And so we've seen probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars wasted by certain individuals because they automatically assume that, and there's no assuming in this, just math, some behavioral, but it's mostly just math, but don't assume. 
But here's another lesson. And Ryan, I love that story. We see that a lot too. People are to hear things and they think, oh, well, this is true. And it might be true for some people, but it's not true across the board. And I think the other lesson to be learned here is who wants to run numbers and crunch numbers about student loan payment amounts and who wants to run numbers about like taxes? I don't want to do that. Actually, (laughs) I take that back. I love doing that. Not the taxes part, but the student loan piece. We've got these great calculators and it's just so fun. So there's a sense of, oh, I'm just going to do what I've heard because I think it's going to be just fine and I'm not going to worry about the rest of it. So maybe that's a lesson. Like, Either delegate it out to your spouse right, or to Ryan or to me or somebody like us because, yeah, there can be a lot of money at stake and it's worth really taking a second look, just making sure that you've got the best plan in place for you. Look, if your debt is more than $50,000, you need to be very serious about it because that is likely going to extend out to you working one or more years if you make the wrong mistake. That's a very good point. Sadly, it's very blunt, but that is the truth. That is the truth. I have a total bias about people getting help. And it's awkward to be talking about this because people are going to be like, oh, she really wants me to work with her, which is true because I think we're the best. There's three groups out there that I think are the best. But let me just put it in terms of the work you do, right? So I know you, Ryan. I know the work you do around your financial planning with Physician Wealth Services. I know Casey because we've done some joint work together. You guys are spectacular, like totally amazing. Oh, continue. Go on. This is great. (laughs) Because let me tell you, I love the holistic approach that you've got, right? So it's not just about, oh, do this for your investments, buy or sell, right? No, but it's you look at the whole piece, including the student loan piece. And that's what's so tough for people is to get like the whole puzzle put together and to have some folks like you that just come alongside, listen well, do the analysis and then help with the step-by-step implementation. You know, I think most people could really benefit from that. Not everybody, but I think most people will. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but you know, to piggyback off of it, I tried to put myself out of business by writing a book for 25 bucks. You can go put together your own financial plan and you're going to get 80% the way there. If you haven't bought it or checked it out, you can do going to financialresidency.com slash book. I've tried that. I give away tons of stuff on the podcast, right? Not everyone needs to work with a planner, but there are some that do and that's okay. And we're here to help if that's the case. But the idea here is still sits. Look, you can get a ton of information here for free. You can join our community. It's free. Financialresidency.com slash community. Like we're here to help and assist because I always look at it as if I can help one doctor, I'm helping thousands of people. And I look at my wife and all of our friends. I mean, I'm the weirdo that like, I only work with doctors. I'm married to a doctor. All my friends are doctors or financial planners. I'm like super deep into this stuff. I'm very passionate about it, but not everyone has to work with people like us. There's people that love nerding out on this stuff and are eating it up and going and researching and, you know, going to dive into the Fed loans and student loan aid and go look at all the different documents of public policies coming out. That's awesome. They never need to. But if that is not you and you have multiple six figures of student debt, you might want to run it by someone that sees it all the time. Cause I've seen so many mistakes, even things that you would think about that aren't a huge deal. We had a client, I've mentioned this on there several times, but I think it is just super important for people to understand. He did everything correct. He's been filing his ECF every year. He's been on point, everything, right? It's almost like he's an engineer. He's super detail oriented. His spouses, when he did his one year fellowship, they counted as three years of qualifying payments. But his residency, which was three years, was one year of qualifying payments. The dates were off. Oh, no. What's probably going to happen when they audit and get everything done to give away 
$550,000, they're probably going to look at that file pretty closely. Granny, he's done all the right things, but that's going to be a headache to unwind. So we went through, it was actually where we got on the phone. We were doing these things and helping and assisting on this. They're going to get forgiveness probably in the next 18 months or so. I'm going off memory here, but that's something that is really important. Just even the little details of, even if you've done everything correctly, the servicers, they're not the best. I hate to break it to them. No offense, Fed loan, but like you kind of stink, right? I wish you had more accountability and better coverage of everything. This person had done everything and it was still wrong. This is why we go through these things. Even if you think you've done it all right, check everything. Keep all your records. It's really important. Now, could that have been a really bad story? Maybe. If they never went through and 18 months from now, they put in all the paperwork, they're trying to get over half a million dollars forgiven and they're going, nope, like this doesn't make sense. Then you got to read. Granted, maybe they get some money back and they refund and eventually it happened. But who wants to deal with that? I don't want to deal with that. I know you probably don't want to deal with that. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be doing almost <laughs> anything else than talking to Fed Loan Servicing and trying to figure that out. But that is a lot of money, right? It's really important. I'm glad you brought up the loan servicing companies because there's just a recent report that showed over 5 million documented errors by one loan servicing company. That's it? Yeah. How many are there? You know, 13 or whatever. Accidents, mistakes are happening. So that might be the other lesson we should talk about, which is it's good when you send in your employment certification form if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness and you get the tracker letter back that says your update on how many qualifying payments you have. Just take a minute and look at that. And on page three of that form, there's a chart and it has each one of your loan sequences laid out and it'll show you how many qualifying payments you have for every ECF that you've sent in for every employment period. And then among your different loan sequences, just make sure that those numbers match, right? Because we see a lot of mistakes where you send in your payment and then let's say you've got six different loans or 30 like the woman I talked to this morning and like you send in one payment, but then they disperse it among all of your loans. And sometimes there's an error in the disbursement of it. The silliest one I've ever seen, Ryan, did I tell you about this? A two cent error. Come on. This was just last week, a physician we were talking with. And, you know, she had sent in her payment. Half of her payments on these six different dates weren't qualifying. I looked at the tracker and on the online tool and I just could not figure out what was going on. So we called and here it turned out that they applied two cents, two pennies more to two of her loans and two cents less to these other two. And so those two, for some odd reason, for six random months out of 80, they did qualify. And the other goofy thing about calling is if you're a borrower and you're calling, you don't really necessarily know that the person on the other end of the line isn't exactly working for you, even though they're servicing your loans. You know, they're working for their employer. And obviously they have a contract with the U.S. Department of Education. So in this call I made jointly with this physician, we found out what the error was. And then there was a long pause on the line. And I was waiting for the rep to say, and so let's do this X, Y, Z to fix this problem. There was no offer of what they were going to do to fix the problem. So instead I said, of course not. So what are you planning to do or what can we do to fix this problem? Because I always find it's always good to be calm and proactive, <laughs> you know, patient in these calls. But yeah, is there anything we can do? What are her options for fixing this problem? Oh, well, then she had two or three different options. And so now we're on like the fixing it side of things. But seriously, it can be really tough to make these calls without knowing the jargon, without knowing enough to know what they, the expectations should be for here. So I guess the lesson is just take a minute look at those forms, make sure all the numbers line up. And I really like to do that sooner rather than later on the count towards the 120, 
because just like your story, you've got someone within 18 months of getting to the 120. You don't want to be trying to fix old problems. We like to fix things as soon as we find them when they pop up. So that would be another lesson. Yeah. They were about halfway through when we started working with them and we saw that. And it took a little over a year to actually get it all the way through the whole system. I'm not surprised. We've had people that have been trying to fix stuff and it's been taking more than a year to get it done. So don't wait, don't delay on that. And it doesn't surprise me on the servicers end. And you have to think one, they're a person too, right? So you don't want to call up and just start yelling. You didn't borrow from them. They're not trying to collect from you. Like it's their job. They're probably not making that much money. It's near minimum wage. It's not a super high paying job. And it probably isn't a very fun job. Think about it. You're one person out of 500 people they're probably going to talk to that day. It's probably a really horrible job. So a little kindness can go a long way, even though it's a painful thing. It's not fun. I hate every time I do it. And that's why I don't call anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't do yeah. it because it drives me crazy, brings my blood pressure up. Uh, <laughs> everything about the whole Fed loan servicing issue with PSLF and calling them and dealing with them brings in a lot of anxiety for everyone involved. So I understand where you come from when you don't want to call and you don't want to do these things, but you have to do it. You have to do it. Yep. Super important. One of the mistakes that we saw physicians make was that they had taken a different job for a little bit more money and a little bit better hours. But in doing so, lost the qualifying payments because they now no longer work for a 501c3. Oh, no. And you got to be careful when you walk through that and know all those pieces. Again, just because your first job out of training, you went through residency and maybe fellowship, and then you got another job. Your first job is an attending, and that was a 501c3. If you're not done with your student debt, don't forget that your next job, if you're likely to move and is going to be probably within two or three years, statistically, that you're actually going to move to another 501c3. Otherwise, your payments are not going to qualify. And if for some reason, let's say that you're going back and your spouse is going to do a fellowship somewhere else and you have to take a temp job somewhere and then do, okay. But if you're planning on moving and actually being there, then you're going to lose eligibility. And if that number is a lot, that is going to probably add significant amount of length to your career that you probably don't want to have happen. So be careful. You know, the other thing we see very similar is when people are in residency and second year, third year, they're looking at different opportunities in terms of their attending job choices. You know, it is sometimes hard to do the analysis. Okay. So you know, St. Joseph's Hospital is offering me 200 with $20,000 a year signing bonus times five years if I stay for five years versus St. Ben's is offering me 220, but there's no signing bonus or it's only three years. Like just those numbers and figuring that out can be very tough for people. And it can be really important, the difference either direction, whether it's the student loan bonus or signing bonus or incentive or it's a salary or their abuse, whatever it is, it can make a big difference in people's overall wealth. And so that's really another time when it's really important to take time, take a deep breath, find a way to crunch those numbers and do that scenario. That's actually one of our favorite things to do because just really adds some light to the decision when you've got the real data. So yeah. Yeah. We've had several clients actually reach out and I'm happy you brought this one up because it deals with the exact same thing is they're trying to weigh out two, three, four different job options. And we always say, look, I'm not an attorney. In fact, all next month, we're going to be talking all about contracts and getting them reviewed and what you need to look for. That is not my specialty. I'm not an attorney. I don't do that. But the finance piece, we look at that in detail. 
and do a lot of analysis and we'll break out and go financially, which one makes sense. Again, we're not looking at analyzing call schedule, right? I'm not looking at the nuances because one word, if it says of versus if can mean a lot of different things, as silly as it is to us speaking English, written contracts likely were written by a large legal team, depending on how big the institution you're working with. You should have your own legal team, probably review those. But when we're looking at the numbers, we've seen physicians that are like, that's a bigger number. And hey, the group's great and whatever. That's a bigger number. I'm going to take that one. And oh, it's got some student loan perk to it, right? They're going to give me $10,000 a year, whatever. If you're going for PSLF, that perk is kind of wasted. See if you can just say, I don't want the perk and add that to my actual income so you can actually spend it. Because if you're going to get it forgiven, why add more money to that pot? Just paying more tax to have it forgiven and doesn't make a lot of sense. So think through how that compensation is actually structured so it's not wasted compensation. Exactly. Wow. It looks like we planned this, but we didn't. This is just the flow. So Ryan, that makes me think folks that like get National Health Service Corps loan forgiveness money or they get the perk from their employer. One of the cool things you can do with that rather than dumping it all against your student loan balance is set up a side account and then make your monthly payments out of that amount of money that's been given to you. We see a lot of people do that. So it's as if you had a higher salary, right? Because you just got this money parked in your checking account and you're just making your student loan payments out of that account. Got a little tax, of course, to pay on that. But it is a nice way to do it. And definitely, if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness, just like Ryan said, don't throw that against your balance. Use it to make your monthly payments. We have seen people actually, when we've done an analysis, refuse the student loan benefit because in the end, in certain situations. You might just pay more tax. Right. It's the taxation is you know bigger than the amount of benefit that would come to them. Don't see that often, but every once in a while we do. Yeah. The other thing we see that's sort of odd, sort of an old school way to do it is some employers want to make the payment directly to your lender for you. Yep. If there's any way that you can get around that, please do, because that is a whole can of worms and we're helping a number of folks with that right now. But you know, with income-driven repayment plans, you know, that number is changing every year and sometimes it's hard to work with the legal team to get all that figured out. So those are a couple of things that we've seen. Yeah, it was actually in the beginning of all of this as PSLF was a thing and all that we saw it more that it was being offered more as comp is we'll pay it directly to and think we're starting to see a lot less of that now, but it still exists. It does, yeah. Speaking on the same topic, and then I'll let you shift it to maybe something else that you've thought of, but we've seen physicians where they've taken the job, they know that they're going to get some sort of elective perk or benefit that would be, hey, my let's say my employer is going to give $10,000 away for five years or $50,000 worth. And they'll end up refinancing out and paying more down because they don't like the debt. And then actually not getting the last one or two years of literally what was left is free money because they didn't do the math to work all the way through it and go, hey, I need to not pay all of this off because there'll be some still left over that my employer is actually going to pay. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, but it's not that much seen- fun. Yeah, you pay an extra six, ten, fifteen thousand, whatever it might be. That's yeah. not fun. Even if it's five hundred dollars, like I'd be annoyed because five hundred dollars could be a couple cool activities with the kids on a vacation post COVID. It would be fun to not have to pay that into the government for that. So be careful with that. Again, that's just math and some planning ahead. And understanding what the whole scope of things. Yeah. Take a big holistic picture on everything. We could probably go on and on, but do you have any other ones that everyone should learn from before we leave? We promised to tell the story a couple of weeks ago when we had the first podcast, I think about the servicer, right? Yeah. Who had gotten the loan servicer problem. So let's just finish that story. Is that okay? Yeah. 
All right. This was actually not one of our clients. It was someone that came to us after he'd made this mistake. And he had been on track. He was doing everything just right for public service loan forgiveness. He had $400,000 of federal direct student loans. He's on an income-driven repayment plan, working for a qualified employer, doing his residency and as an attending physician. But over time, as his income increased, he got to the point where he was on pay as you earn, that the next time he sent in his income recertification, he was at the level where the cap should have kicked in. But instead, his loan servicer made a mistake and sent him the letter that said, I'm sorry, you no longer have a partial financial hardship. <clears throat> you no longer qualify for public for uh, pay as you earn. He read that letter, his heart sank, because he interpreted that to mean he no longer was eligible for public service loan forgiveness. And he had $400,000 of student loans that he'd been paying just small amounts on for the last seven years. And so he ended up deciding he might as well refinance now because what else could he do? So that was a huge, very expensive mistake that like that the loan servicer caused for him. That's one of the mistakes that you can't fix that, unfortunately. So that was probably that one I did have my tissue out. That was a very sad story that we saw. Yeah. That makes me want to like crawl in a little hole and cry for that person because that is probably a half million dollar mistake that was made considering that's a large amount. Exactly. And Unless you they're know, making we're... seven figures and then, okay, whatever. Like it still stinks, but like you can recover very quickly and easily from that, but that is likely not the case. Just makes me mad to the whole idea of power dynamics, right? And the loan servicing company has the power because they've got the information and the borrowers only has the power of the information they have. And so, yeah, it's and a number of even the justice idea makes me mad. Yeah. So I guess the lesson there, what would be the lesson, Ryan? Just double check things or call a friend to see if anybody else has had the same problem. Reach out to someone who works on this regularly. Yeah, play like you're on the who wants to be a millionaire game and call a friend. Can I refer? Can I poll the audience, please? I'm like showing that I'm older. That's yeah, fine. That's a good show when it was on. I don't know if it's actually still on, but... Oh, that poor guy. That's such a bummer. If you're going to make any decision that is dealing with tens of thousands of dollars, like probably start talking to some people and going, is this the right thing or not? When you talk about hundreds of thousands of dollars, you better be dang sure you're doing the right thing, especially when it comes to your student debt. So I don't know, never trust the servicer maybe is the lesson. That's the lesson. Yeah, totally take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Again, remember who you're talking to on the other end and that they're not working for you, that they work for their employer, I think is a very good mindset and perspective to have. That's a terrible story. Well, I wish we weren't leaving on that one, but like these are again, mistakes that yeah. you make. Now, I think we saved that one. That was probably good to save that one and end on, but these are mistakes that we're seeing people make. Please don't make these same mistakes. Please. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to say it again. We don't want to have it on a show. Don't be that. But Joy, thank you so much for coming on. And for anyone that is looking to work in the student debt space with you, whether it's a quick review, helping call the servicer, like you guys do so many other things, maybe tell them again where they can find you. And again, thank you. Oh, it's great to be your guest on the podcast. I'm really thankful to you and your listeners. So thank you very much. Yeah. Find us at our website, navigatestudentloans.com. You can also find us on Ryan's website financialresidency.com slash navigate. And we always start with a free 15 minute, no obligation, satisfaction guaranteed, just review of what you're currently doing. Or it's time just to ask your questions. And we're happy to let you know if everything you're doing is great. We'll give you a gold star and send you on your way. Or turns out you need a little more help. We're happy to do that too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, moving over to our financial malpractice segment, one of my favorite segments on the show now. I've got Nathan and Notesong from Thoughtful Wills back on the show, guys. Welcome back. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Hey, Ryan. Hello, hello. Hey, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to use my sexy radio voice. Well, hello, Nathan. This is going to be good. All right. We're already talking sexy radio voice. This is going to be a really good tip. You know where this is going. All right. What do you have for us as a community today learning about estate planning? Maybe a horror story, maybe some financial malpractice inside there. It's a could have been horror story about my own parents, Marge and Gareth Cavley, who live in Jamestown, North Dakota. We did their documents last year because my parents, like so many people, always meant to get around to it. You know, and then finally you're just like, are you kidding? You're my own parents. Let me do your documents. So finally we did their wills. My parents don't have a lot of money, so we didn't need to do a trust for them. But durable power of attorney and healthcare directives got it all set up sent them their documents in the mail. And then every so often, like a good Lutheran mother, my mom would confess to me that they were going to get their wills signed soon. She'd tell me this. And so I'd be like, good for you. But the thing is, there's no A for effort when it comes to wills. It's like, until you properly sign your wills, you've got nothing. The judge is going to be like, oh, but they were gonna, right? (laughs) The postal note said, I signed my will. That doesn't count. And so that's the horror thing. Again, it's that hard part because we don't want to sound like we harp. And that's the same thing too with my mother. I get it from her and now I get to give it back to her where I'm like, you got to get this done. Yes, I'll call my grandfather. Yes, you've got to get your wills signed. Eventually they did sign them. But I think it's just that piece. And we've tried to sort of remove a lot of those things. I think a lot of people worried like, who should get the China cabinet? Who's going to get the curios from grandma? Who's going to get grandpa's pocket watch? And we've tried to remove as many of those impediments as possible. We use a special gift letter so we can say like, don't worry about it now. You can monkey around with all those little things later. Just sign your damn documents. Get it done. It's not a horror story. It's a happy ending story. It could have been, you know, COVID, my mom's breast cancer survivor, like things could have gone south really quickly. And there's other mechanisms and you hope it'll all work out. My brothers and I get along fine and my parents are happily married still after all these years. It's luck, right? Until you get these documents signed, it's just luck. Our system, we have these mechanisms in place. We have every state has a default plan and there are court proceedings where guardians can be appointed and things if people are in comas. So those aren't happy occasions. Those aren't good things to rely on. And so it's like, Until you have signed your documents, it's just a lot of luck. You're one of the lucky ones. So my parents were lucky ones, and thankfully they've signed it. And as you always say, Nathan, and I love this because it could be on the cover of a Candyland game, in the land of wills, there's no A for effort. And so, I mean, I think it's all too often that, you know, people finally plan their estate plan and they create their will, or as Ryan always puts it, the four pillars of an estate plan. And then the all too common scenario results in clients just popping it into their death drawer, which is not fireproof, by the way. And then if they have a trust, they don't fund it. So that's another piece that I think a lot of folks don't do. And that's a really critical step is transferring your assets into the trust. We've talked about this before. And the thing is, your whole plan can crumble. And those assets will be required to pass through probate court before passing to the trust. And then all your hard planning will really all be for naught. So 
if the sole purpose of a trust is probate avoidance, and that's we call ours a probate avoidance trust because that's what it does, this can make the use of a trust and the cost up front to create it completely pointless. Follow through. It's not good enough to just get the documents from us, which by the way, I think are on the most beautiful paper. It's this linen paper that Nathan found in Boston and he burst through the doors of the store in Boston and he said, you have my paper, whatever you said, but it's the best story ever. Well, you guys actually do have really nice paper because when it came and I looked at this, and I was like, did she mean to print it on this like really nice stuff? Like I'm all looking at like, is there a copy in there, Taylor? Like what, why is this so nice? I love this. We were talking about my parents. We we're supposed to be talking about horror stories and now we're talking about papers, which is sort of a passion of mine. And you've mentioned this too before where like Taylor had said, like this wasn't as gross as last time we had to do this. You know, we've tried to sort of make the process not as awful as it could be because we're talking about documents that are about death and comas. And so when we send the documents to our clients, we print them on nice paper because at some level, I feel like they're important. They're magical documents that let you change the world, even though you've passed on. These are powerful, like superhero documents. And so it feels awesome to send them to you in paper that feels a little special. So I was in Boston, I was trying to find cool paper and you go to Office Max and they have the same disgusting resume paper that I remember in like 1991, using a typewriter to type out on. It's the same paper. It's not changed at all. And I was like, there must be something better. I was going to Boston. I found this store that just sold paper. And I I took a cab because I was visiting and I made it to the store like 20 minutes before they closed because of course they're like a paper store. So they're only open like Monday through Friday and they close promptly at 4.30 or some ridiculous. Because who buys paper on a Friday evening? Well, yeah, exactly. But why would anyone want to come not during business hours? Like those things where it's like, could you be any less convenient? And that's how this store worked. But they had the magic paper and I walked in and I was like, I need to find some amazing paper. And they were, they were sort of... I was really into paper. I mean, I love paper. Funny. I love paper. Love I love fonts. It's a super font nerd too, but... Well, I can tell what you guys have put together. It's really well, good I mean, stuff. So. We're lawyers, right? I mean, words are what we do. But like, we're not carpenters. We don't build bookcases. We build documents. And so it is sort of a pride of construction. It's goofy because the documents aren't any more legal because they're beautiful. But at some level, we do take a lot of pride in them. And we hope that you do too. These documents are you taking care of your kids, right? These documents are you making sure that your spouse has the mechanisms in place to take care of you if something tragic happens. Like these are amazing documents. And it probably sounds super cheesy, but I'm okay feeling like, yeah, I'm a little cheesy now. And we try to make them beautiful as well as understandable and legally perfect. That's our goal. I like talking about numbers and money. You can't get nerdier than me. I like that you're passionate about that stuff. Let's round this out here with if you have gone through and you've put together all this stuff and you've had those hard conversations and you've written all this stuff out and you had someone help you build out a really nice estate plan, please get it signed. They're trying to make it on their end really nice and pretty. So you feel guilty not signing this stuff. But if you don't have it signed, you don't have an estate plan. I think that's very easy to state. And note song you'd put it is, well, let's make sure that assets get transferred in. Are there certain assets that people typically forget to transfer in? that you guys maybe have seen or heard or could think about that anyone that maybe has gone through this process is, oh, shoot, I forgot to move that over. Great idea. I mean, the obvious titled assets would be your house, a car, maybe if you got a boat, maybe a summer home or a vacation home or something. I think it really comes down to 
people forgetting about your non-probate asset. And those are things like life insurance, retirement accounts, 401s, things like that. And those have their own beneficiary designation. And so what we always advise clients to do is to replace the primary beneficiary and put the name of the trust there so that everything flows into the trust and then it's distributed according to the plan for your trust estate. So that's where I would see where people forget. Nathan, do you have any? No, that's exactly right. I think your biggest ticket items usually are your home, like real estate. But the thing is, if you forget to put your real estate in your trust, it'll just end up being a probate asset and it'll go through probate your will will then dump it into your trust and that's good. But if you mess up your non-probate assets, if you forget that you've named your ex-wife as the beneficiary of your life insurance, your will and trust don't reverse that lapse, right? It's one of those pieces like the real mess ups happen when people forget specifically like life insurance and 401k because the will and the trust do not overrule those beneficiary designations. Those are set. And so if you are on your second or third spouse or something and you haven't updated it, you know, that person that you maybe hate a lot, <laughs> they get some money. I'm going to get all legally nerdy. There is case law where there was a spouse that ended up getting 80%. A husband that died ended up naming the ex-wife and giving her 80% of that non-profit asset. And then his kids from a prior marriage only got 20%. And guess who got the $41 million? The ex-wife. She won. That was it. End game. This is why when we look at just for our clients at Physician Wall Services, we break out and as they're putting things together, it's, well, we're going to once a year review these things and make sure that it's up to par, right? If anything's changed in your risk tolerance and anything's changed on that, we have protocols for that. Well, has anything changed with your estate planning? Is there people you want to disinherit? Is there changes you want to make to your estate plan that need to happen, which we won't be doing that for them. We're not attorneys like you guys, but we're at least bringing up those conversations. And I think it's important to have that discussion and even have like a cheat sheet instead of reading 40 pages of whatever you put down, have a one page. Here are the guardians. Here are my power of attorneys. Have it all boiled out. So it's a quick review once over and, and done. Well, I'd like to add also that we always encourage our clients to read their documents and really strive to make them understandable, taking out as much unnecessary legalese as possible. So they are actually understandable to everyday non-lawyer people. So that's the other important piece is, is take time to just read through your documents and make sure it does reflect everything and reflecting your current wishes. I'm like, don't be a doctor and just sign this. Please read it. Ask me questions, right? I want you to understand what you're doing. Same thing goes with your estate plan right? You're going to walk all these different pieces here. There's a thousand moving pieces. You're going to get it all done. It's going to look all beautiful and nice. And don't just sign it, read through it, make sure it makes sense. Make sure that everything is captured with what you're looking at, with what you want, with where you want to go, whatever it may be. Everyone is different. Everyone has different assets, different things that are important. Please read through it, sign it, actually sign it. Don't be like Nathan's parents. Don't be like Margin Garrett, sign it soon. Not like soon is in six months soon, ASAP soon. But the guys, thank you so much for being back on the show. And if anyone out there does not have your estate planning done still, even though I've talked about this a billion times on the Friday show, we've done several malpractice shows. We've had several shows just on estate planning. If you have not done your estate planning, please, please, please get it done. You can reach out to these fantastic individuals at Thoughtful Wills by going to financialresidency.com slash TW. All right, so we kind of had the whole show be a giant financial malpractice segment because we talked a ton about student debt and a lot of the things that we're seeing physicians make. And then, of course, we follow it with our actual financial malpractice segment with other mistakes that we see physicians make. Hopefully you make none of those. But if you have, 
don't worry. Don't like shove your head in the sand and be like, I give up and I'm not going to do this anymore. You still need to do it. Use this as like fuel for some motivation to get you going. So hopefully this is helpful. Uh, We love all of you. Thank you so much for listening, for being here. Make sure to share this show with one friend. Takes you like two seconds. Click share link, text it to someone, text it to another physician family that could really benefit from hearing more about student debt and insurance and investments all sorts of fun stuff. So thank you so much for being here. All right, now as we round out our show, want to give one more big shout out to today's sponsor. Really appreciate them sponsoring the show and that is Locum Story. So don't forget to visit Locum Story if you want to get real unbiased answers to all the Locum Tenants questions that you have. You can check them out by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash Locum Story. And again, the link is in the description of the podcast you're listening to in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week and I will catch you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. 